Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. When I sent the results to Angie, she noticed that the Orchid Cellmark Lab received the evidence for DNA testing five months after the murder. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. As all of you know, this case, the double homicide of Agnes and Lloyd Courtney, was brought to us by Allison Clayton of the Innocence Project of Texas. The case was brought to Allison originally by a DNA analyst that had been reviewing it. Dr. Angie Ambers was originally approached by Agnes's niece, Leanne Dauphino, a former judge, who asked her to take a look at the case materials. And it didn't take long before Dr. Ambers became convinced that something was not right with Deborah Perringer's conviction. Dr. Ambers agreed to jump on the phone with me this week to share her concerns. I'll be honest, I was a little surprised during the conversation that you're about to hear that despite her expertise in DNA, it wasn't necessarily the blood evidence that caught her attention. Our chat did not go in the direction that I expected, but it was interesting nonetheless. And it led to a very interesting analysis towards the end. Here's my conversation with DNA expert, Dr. Angie Ambers. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's nothing like Ireland's wild Atlantic way. 1,600 miles of soaring cliffs, dreamy remote islands, and buzzing little towns. Not to mention the seafood. Oh, the seafood. And if you drive with Irish ferries, you'll arrive relaxed and ready to explore. Bring the whole gang, pets and all. Fill the boot with goodies and get a warm Irish welcome before you even get to Ireland. Hop across from Hollyhead to Dublin. Book early at irishferries.com and see travel differently. Terms and conditions apply. I'm joined on the phone today by Miss Angie Ambers. Angie is a DNA specialist, and she is actually a big part of the reason why we are investigating the murders of Agnes and Lloyd Courtney. You heard Allison mention Angie briefly in episode one, where she talked about how a DNA expert that she knows brought the case to her and wanted her to review it. And so uh, I reached out to Angie. She was gracious enough to get on the phone with us and explain why she thinks that this case needs a second look. Um, so, Angie, first of all, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. And um, before we get into the case, can you first lay out your background, your education? Now, you just before we hit record told me that you work for 
a forensic scientist that pretty much all of our listeners will certainly know who he is. Uh, but I'll let you explain, you know, how you have worked in the field, what your education is, and where you're working now. Sure. So I actually spent 20 years working in the Dallas Fort, the Dallas Fort Worth area, which is how I became acquainted with this case. And I can go into a little bit more detail specifically about that later. But I'm a, I'm a forensic geneticist. I'm a forensic DNA analyst, and I've spent my entire career focusing on highly challenged remains, uh, skeletal remains, human remains, etc. And I'm particularly I've always particularly had an interest in anything that's heavily degraded or diluted in terms of DNA that might be recovered in casework. So I have a PhD in molecular biology with an emphasis on forensic genetics and human identification and a master's degree in forensic genetics and a master's degree in criminology. And I spent the bulk of my career as a forensic DNA expert working in Fort Worth, which is where these murders occurred. And I now work for Dr. Henry Lee here in West Haven, Connecticut. So I'm assistant director of the Henry Lee Institute of Forensic Science. And I also have an associate professor appointment in the Henry Lee College of Criminal Justice and Forensic Sciences. So we do a lot of teaching and training of current and future forensic scientists. And we also do casework research and a lot of outside consulting. That's amazing. And so for for those of you listening that aren't aware, Henry Lee is widely renowned as one of the top, if not the top, blood spatter analysts in the world. Is that accurate? Did I describe him accurately? He he is amazing. Yes, it's an honor to work for him. He has expertise in quite a few areas, but yes. Well, that's great. The next time we have a case where we need a blood spatter analysis done. Now I know who to reach out to to tap Dr. Lee on the shoulder and see if he can help us out. Absolutely. So your interest in this case, first of all, do you have any personal connection to any of the players in this case? I don't. Actually, um, I can tell you how I got involved with the case. It's it's quite an interesting story. So I, I started doing private consulting, casework consulting in Texas on the side kind of as a side gig while I was working outside of my full-time job as a DNA analyst. And I started speaking at a lot of attorneys' conferences around the state of Texas. And I would just basic, I would give basic forensic DNA presentations to attorneys that wanted to be better, uh, that wanted to understand forensic evidence, uh, forensic DNA evidence better so that they could represent their clients more effectively. And I was at a conference in summer 2018 in San Antonio. And I had only flown down for the day because I had to get back to work. And so I basically gave my presentation and then left the ballroom. And a woman followed me out of the ballroom and started talking to me. And that woman is a former judge, Leanne Dofino, a former judge in Texas. And she's related to Deborah Peeringer. And she just asked me if I had a few minutes that she wanted to talk to me about a case, and I'd never met her prior to that. And and I only had about 30 minutes before I had, a, had to catch a cab to the airport to fly back to Dallas. And in that 30 minutes, she intrigued me enough <laughs> to where we agreed to have her email me some of the case file information. I told her I would take kind of a preliminary glance at it. 
And long story short, I got back to Dallas and she emailed me the information and I had a full, I had a full time job as a DNA analyst and I was teaching at night at the University of North Texas Denton campus. So I had two jobs and it took me a while to get to the case file, but I sat down one weekend and literally within about 10, 10 or 15 minutes, I was completely just hooked on this case. There were so many things about it that didn't make sense to me, which it sounds like they don't make sense to you and a lot of other people as well. Right. And so what I what I did, because of my limited time availability during that period, what I did is I would occasionally run into Allison Clayton and Mike Ware, the director of the Innocence Project, at, at conferences for attorneys. And whenever we would be having lunch or dinner and drinks. I just kept bringing up this case and saying, you guys need to take on this case. It's really, there's a lot that doesn't make sense in terms of the way it was presented at the time of trial. And I think I finally got them intrigued enough to take a look at it. And this was right before, and this was not a quick process, by the way. Uh, This was about a year of me probing other people and saying, particularly Allison and Mike Ware, and saying, you guys You know, this is a good case. You know, we need to look into this. Let's work together on this. And then in the midst of that, at the point that I had kind of gotten them hooked and intrigued by it, after kind of forcing it on on them, um, I had then been offered the job up here in Connecticut with Henry Lee's team. And so I basically passed on what I had in the case file materials and thought that I would move up here to Connecticut and just you know, move forward and do local cases up here. But this is just one of those cases that even though I'm in Connecticut and it's a Texas case and that primary team working on it is in Texas, I just, it's one of those cases that I just can't get out of my mind. So, yeah, that's really interesting. And and what I am and everyone is, is would be fascinated to hear is what about it? Because, you know, where we're at now, what we do and I feel your pain being remote because we're working in Michigan, working on this Texas case. But there, there's a lot of questions about the crime scene stuff that we've uncovered. I, I think we've pretty much basically completely disproven the state's theory of the case. That it, there's just no evidence to support it whatsoever. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Deborah Perringer is innocent. It just means that they got you know the the logistics wrong. But to me, there's a lot of reasons to think that Debbie Perringer didn't do this, DNA aside. But then a lot of, especially our listeners and, and even myself, have a real hard time with the fact that Debbie's blood is found throughout this crime scene. It, it seems very convenient. So can you explain to us why, when you looked at the case, your feeling was that, that something was amiss here based on the DNA evidence? Well, so first and foremost, I've never actually even seen the DNA evidence. When Leanne Dofino gave me the case file, that was the one bit of information in the case file that we didn't have copies of. And so I had told Allison and Mike, you know, get me the DNA results and let me look at that so that I can make more definitive statements about the strengths or weaknesses of that evidence. But I'll tell you one thing that really struck me when I was reading through the court transcript is, you know, and and I've seen this over and over and over again in cases that I consult on, is the fact that Deborah Perringer's defense attorney never hired a DNA expert to advocate on, you know, advocate for her during the trial. And 
you know, DNA was such a big part of this case in sealing the sealing her conviction that it doesn't make sense to me that a good defense attorney would not hire an independent forensic DNA expert to review all of that evidence because it was a pretty bloody scene. And, and I'll say that one of the things that initially DNA aside got me, got me intrigued with this case is not just reading through the documents that Judge Dauphino sent me, but she actually, um, she kept on me. She was persistent about it. And she invited me over to her house in Fort Worth one weekend. She said, come to my house. I've got the crime scene video. She only had it on a, like a CD on a disc at the time. She said, come to my house and, um, we'll have lunch and then we'll watch the video. And she said, I'm just going to let you watch it and you tell me what you think. And she had this giant, you know, flat screen TV in her sitting area and we had lunch and watched the video and we probably sat there that afternoon and rewound and slow fast forwarded and slow reversed and paused. We probably watched that that crime scene video at least 20 times that day and I've probably now seen that video about a hundred times. And and one of the things that that really immediately stood out to me because I was trying to envision if I were the perpetrator, how would I have committed this crime myself? And the four cast iron skillets really threw me off. Not because of the choice of the weapon, but I was envisioning all four of those cast iron skillets broke. And I was envisioning that if one person, the state's theory was that one person, i.e. Deborah Peringer, committed both of these murders, I was thinking, okay, so what did she do when the first cast iron skillet broke? Did she call a timeout and ask them to pause so she could go and grab another one and then the second one broke? Did she say timeout again? I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me logically how this could have been committed by one person. Aside from the fact, uh, or I should say in addition to the fact that there was no blood trail, at least from what I could see, between the dining room where Smitty was found and the back bedroom where Agnes was found. I didn't see any blood tracing down that hallway. And, you know, part of the state theory, too, was that Agnes had come home from shopping and walked in on either Smitty being attacked at the time or he had already been attacked and was dead at that point. I didn't understand why she wouldn't have run straight back out through the garage as right. opposed to running towards the back of the house. But that that hallway was very narrow. And anybody that watches that crime scene video, you can see all of the frames and things that are hung on the wall in that hallway. And none of it was disturbed. None of the, none of the framed photos or anything were askew. And I find it hard to believe that she could have run down that hallway and not knocked any of those things on the wall askew. And also, I'll, I'll say this too. I had looked up the information about Deborah's, uh, Deborah's age, height, and weight. And I, I'm a Southern girl. I was born in Kentucky, raised in Tennessee, and grew up you know, cooking with cast iron skillets, and, and they're pretty darn heavy. And I can't imagine, and I'm a pretty fit person, but I can't imagine having the strength 
and the stamina to hit two people hard enough with four different cast iron skillets to break all four of them. And then not just break all of them, but I'll say this, back in the back bedroom, this is another thing that struck me, in the back bedroom where Agnes was found, that cast iron skillet that was embedded in the drywall, in the wall, pretty deep into the wall, like one of those Japanese throwing stars is what it looked like to me. Um, You know, I'm not a physicist by any means, but, you know, I would imagine that that cast iron skillet would have been, would have had to have been flying through the air with, you know, a pretty high degree of force and velocity to embed in the wall like that. So to me, just from the get-go, it just seemed like there had to have been more than one person involved in these murders. And then, on you know, on top of that, like I said, at this point, I hadn't even seen the DNA, but I had told Judge Dauphino, you know, did they recover, I said, did they recover DNA mixtures, or were they single-source samples, or what were they, and where were they found? Because, first and foremost, Deborah was Agnes and Courtney, or sorry, Agnes and Smitty's biological daughter, so she gets half of her DNA from Smitty and half of her DNA matches Agnes. So if they recovered a bunch of DNA mixtures from around that house, Deborah would be included in almost every single mixture that was recovered. In addition to the fact that it was very well established and well known that she was a frequent visitor to their house. And anybody that studies forensic science now, or even even if you don't study it formally, but you just watch, you know, true crime shows or documentaries on TV, or listen to podcasts like yours, our forensic DNA technology now is so good and so advanced and so sensitive that we can detect very, very, very minute, very small amounts of DNA. And a lot of people think about this as touch DNA. And it's not just DNA that's transferred when you touch an item, but we are continually sloughing off dead skin cells from our body. That's primarily what dust is made up of in our homes. So there's no doubt that Deborah, I don't care how clean or how good of a homemaker or house cleaner Agnes was, how clean and tidy she was, there's no doubt that Deborah's DNA would have been all over that house. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. And But, you know, the, the DNA that they attributed to her, at least based on the way it was it was explained at trial, which I'll point out too. One thing that I noticed in these transcripts were not only did uh, Bayes, the defense attorney, not call a DNA expert, but did you notice when you're reading through the record also that I have yet I've been through a good portion of the state's case and I have yet to find an objection to anything. I know, I know, because you know that was one of the things. That's why I told Judge Stefano. I said, "Let me get those." DNA results and look at them intricately. Let me comb through them and find detail. Because I felt, I feel like, and again, I have not seen the results yet. No one has sent them to me, but I feel like there's probably stuff in that, in the data, in the DNA data that had David Bayes, had Deborah's defense attorney hired a DNA expert, could have fed him the correct questions to ask the state's DNA expert during cross-examination that might have, might very well have been enough to plant reasonable doubt 
in the minds of the jury as to Deborah's guilt. Aside from the fact that there were several other things, you know, with with the the man that was spotted in the backyard around their perceived time or, you know, predicted time of the murders by the veterinarian that lived behind the Courtney. It seems strange to me that they didn't really pursue that, that lead. And then the neighbor across the street, I remember from reading early on in the transcripts, if I remember correctly, it was the neighbor across the street that was one of the first people that testified during the trial. and. She had talked about several odd things that had happened shortly before, like within a week or so of the murders. There were some men that that drove by in the neighborhood and stopped in front of her house and then walked up to her driveway and asked her to confirm that the house across the street was Agnes's house. That's, you know, that was very odd. And she said that she didn't recognize them. And it sounded to me like, from talking to Judge Dauphino and then reading the transcripts, it sounded like this was one of those neighborhoods where a lot of uh, retired and elderly people lived, and they tended to kind of know everything that was going on with their neighbors in terms of their habits and, and typical movements. So, you know, she she brought up that, you know, it was odd that these strange men were asking for converse, confirmation that that was Agnes's house. To me, that was almost like, were they staking out the house ahead of time to make sure that they got the correct person? Was it somebody that was hired? You know, was it a contracted? I don't know, but that was odd. And then the the men that showed up, if I remember correctly, the the morning of or the morning before the murders to mow the lawn of Agnes and Smitty, and it, they weren't hired to do it, and the neighbor across the street had said that Smitty had to come outside and and run them off because they had the wrong yard. There, there just were a lot of pieces of information that, it, to me, it felt like they just conveniently blocked out of their minds, and it was almost like they got tunnel vision on Deborah. And I'll, I'll, I'll say this. I, I told you I haven't actually seen the DNA evidence, and I would love to see it. <laughs> because I've been so intrigued by this case and puzzled by this case for so long. But I'll tell you something that really immediately drew my attention in terms of the DNA in this case. And I don't know if anybody's told you this yet or if your team has researched it and discovered it on your own. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So the Courtney's were murdered in November of 2001. And 
for pretty much the entirety of 2002, the Fort Worth Police Department's DNA lab was under a huge investigation. It was very well known in the forensic DNA community. It, it had a lot of press. So right around the time the evidence, the DNA evidence that would have been tested in the, you know, in the murders of Agnes and Lloyd Courtney, right around that same time, the Fort Worth PD's DNA lab was being investigated for bad practices, basically, for not following standard operating procedures, et cetera. And then it was either October or November 2002, so almost a year after the Courtney's were murdered, the Fort Worth PD's DNA lab was actually shut down. They suspended all DNA casework in that lab. And so that was one of the things that struck me is Judge Stefano was not able to get the DNA results so that I could look at, you know, get me copies so that I could look at them when I still lived in Texas. But it just so happened that this evidence would have been tested around the time that this big scandal was happening with the Fort Worth Police Department's, Department's DNA lab. And actually, they didn't resume DNA testing at the Fort Worth PD for about 10 years after that. So that kind of struck me as well. And that was why I was so intrigued. I'm like, well, let me see those DNA results. Um, Leanne Dofano had also told me that, and this is, you know, secondhand knowledge for me because all of this stuff has been passed on to me, but Judge Dofano said that Fort Worth PD originally tested the evidence and they didn't get results, and then they farmed it out. They subcontracted out the work to Orchid Cellmark, which is a private DNA lab in the Dallas-Fort Worth area at the time. So I don't know if that's true. Well, I know that I know for sure that Orchid is the one that did the testing, The that Jamie King, I think, was the analyst name that testified, was from the Orchid lab. But I'd like to see, I'd like to see the date on that because, like I said, Dofino says that Fort Worth PD did the initial testing and then they farmed it out. I know Fort Worth PD was still doing DNA casework during that time period. So the Courtney's were murdered in November 2001. The Fort Worth PD DNA lab did not shut down or their casework operations didn't get suspended until almost a full year later. So it's unclear to me then why, again, there's a question in my mind, why would it have been farmed out to Orchid Cellmark when they were still doing active DNA casework at the time? Or was it true that they tried to get results and they didn't, so they, you know, they subcontracted it out to a private lab for a second try? I don't know. I haven't seen the dates between when the evidence was collected and the time that the Fort Worth PD DNA lab was shut down, I haven't seen the dates on any of the DNA testing that was done, when it was done, what sequence it was done in, whether it was second round testing. I, you know, I don't know. I'd love to see the results. Yeah, well, I can help you out with that. I, I wish I'd known that before we got on the phone. I would have sent them to you prior to. But I, I do have, I have three different DNA reports that I believe are all from Orchid. So was, as soon as we're off from this call, I'll email those to you, and uh, maybe we can touch base again after that to see what you what you think about the the results. I didn't realize you didn't have them. Yeah, but let, so let me ask you this: You said that you have because this is another thing that happens in a lot of cases that we consult on, and it's one of the things I lecture about at conferences for attorneys. I'll tell you, in literally a hundred percent of the cases that I've consulted on over the years. 
an attorney will contact me needing a DNA expert. They'll ask me, they'll give me a basic rundown of the case and they'll ask me if I'll work with them and I'll tell them, yes, send me the case file with the DNA results. And 100% of the time, and I'm not exaggerating this, what they send me is the summary report. That is not the DNA evidence. That's not the DNA result. That's the summary report that was written up based on the results that were generated in the lab. And it's impossible for a forensic DNA expert to critically evaluate and review the results when all we have is the summary report. So in 100% of cases that I've worked, I've always had to go back to the attorney and say, I don't need the summary. The summary reports are good. I need those. But what I actually need is the DNA results that were generated. And those are in the form of what are called electropherograms. And they look like they look like peaks, almost like a lot of people know what an electrocardiogram looks like when they have a heart test done at the hospital. And DNA results come out in the form of an electropherogram with a series of peaks on a chart. And what the summary report is, is the analyst in the laboratory reviewing and interpre- interpreting those electropherograms and then basically converting it into a basic Excel spreadsheet or a table format. And the reason that's problematic is because you can't tell as a forensic DNA expert when you're reviewing the summary report, you can't tell if they interpreted the electropherograms correctly without having the electropherograms to look at. And so that's where part of the the issue comes in. So I don't know if you have the electrophorograms, but that's what I mean by I need to see the DNA results or anybody that reviewing a case needs to see. I have to look through and see what I have, but I, I don't think I ha- I think what I have is what you re- referred to. It looks like almost like an Excel spreadsheet that has the different alleles. You know, it's, it's a grid with numbers on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's just the summary. That's like the final report on the DNA results that were generated. And I'm not saying this happened in this case, but I'll tell you, again, there's there's two reasons why an independent forensic DNA expert needs to actually see the results, not the summary report. One is because, obviously, we need to review the actual results to make sure they were interpreted and converted appropriately into that final summary report. But there's another thing that's done, and and I'm not saying it's the norm, but it's happened. And and the only way to prove that the DNA work was actually done is to ask for the electrophorograms, the actual DNA results. Is there's something that's called dry labbing. And quite a few, there's quite a few infamous forensic scientists, not just in the DNA field, but in forensic chemistry, toxicology, a lot of the different disciplines that have been caught over the years doing what's called dry labbing, where I'll give you a scenario. You know, one of the flaws, in my opinion, of the criminal justice system in the U.S. is that the vast majority of forensic crime labs are affiliated with a police department, a sheriff's office, or a DA's office. And so there's a perceived, you know, you're being paid by the state, regional, or federal government to do your forensic casework. So there's a perceived alliance with a police department or a DA's office, and, and it becomes increasingly difficult to remain an unbiased scientist when the people that you're working with daily and becoming friends with are police officers, detectives, attorneys, et cetera. 
So the scenario here's the scenario that is that has happened, and I can give you <laughs> names of people that are infamous for this. The scenario is you you happen to know a detective that's working this case, and he comes to you, delivers the evidence to the lab, and he says, "Gosh, you know, I just came from this horrific crime scene, and you know, you wouldn't believe how brutal this murder was, and we know we've got the right." person, all we need is the DNA to seal the deal, to seal this person's fate, to get the conviction. And dry labbing is when, say, in the case of a DNA analyst, the DNA analyst does do the DNA profiling on the reference sample, so like the cheek or buckle swabs from the suspects and from the victim. And then they don't actually do the bench work, the laboratory work on the evidentiary samples, but they type up a summary report and they list the same profile as the suspect's reference profile associated with the evidence. Oh, my God. And that is not, like I said, that is by no, by no means the norm. I'm not saying that there's a lot of, you know, fraudulent forensic scientists out there, but it does happen. And there, there are continuous examples of this throughout the history of forensic science. Of people, and that's why there's a term that's coined for it. It's called dry lab, and you don't actually do the wet lab work. You just type up the summary report, and you say, "Yep, it matches. The evidence matches the reference sample you gave me for the suspect." And the reason that that concerns me, and again, I'm not accusing the Fort Worth Police Department of doing this or or anybody at Orchid Cellmark, but the reason I would want to at least be thorough and look into that and ask for the actual DNA results is because there was, you know, you can't say that there wasn't a little bit of bias, in my opinion, in this case. I mean, the Fort Worth Police Department, Smitty was a longtime employee of the Fort Worth Police, and they wanted to, you know, they wanted to pin this on someone. They wanted to get a conviction. So I feel like there might have been a little bit of conflict of interest there. Maybe that's why they subcontracted out the DNA work to Orchid Cellmark. I don't know if, if that was related to the fact that their own DNA lab was having a lot of problems at the time, but it's impossible for an independent forensic DNA expert to evaluate, number one, that the DNA testing was actually done on the evidence, and number two, to evaluate whether or not it was interpreted correctly without the actual electrophorograms. And to get those electrophorograms, the if I don't have them in my files, I assume I would need to go directly to ORCID to, to get those files? Yeah. And I'm not sure. I don't know if they would release it to a private party. Every time I've had to go back to an attorney, and again, it's just not typically, it doesn't make sense to me. It's not a typical, typically when an attorney asks for the case file to prepare for trial. For whatever reason, I'm not saying I agree with it, they typically just turn over the summary reports. And every almost every time we have to go back and say, no, we want everything. We want the bench analyst notes. We want their uh, the serology re results. We want to see what types of presumptive and confirmatory tests for body fluids were done and what what were the results. Um, were they weak positive, strong positive? You know, there's a variety of things that need to be evaluated with that. But, yeah, you have to ask for them. And so, again, that's one of the things when I speak at attorney's conferences 
is in a lot of my PowerPoint lectures, I give them a bullet point list. And I say, if you want your expert that you're hiring to help you with this case, to to have all the information they need to do a thorough evaluation, here's a bullet point list of all the specific things you need to ask for um, when you contact the laboratory that did the testing. And I tell them, just you, you can have my PowerPoint just highlight and cut and paste this bullet point list into the email. I'm trying to get that you know, that message out. Because a summary report, I could sit down right now and write up a summary report. If I had Deborah Peringer's DNA profile, I could write up a summary report and say that 100 items of evidence were collected from the scene and they all had Deborah's DNA on it. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Now, in this case, though, we have Debbie has testified that she did bleed on the scene that day. Mm-hmm. And it's just this whole reading through the state's case and, and reporting on it over these last this last month has been difficult because Bayes just, you know, there were three DNA experts that testified. Two of them did the the presumptive and confirmatory tests for body fluids. He didn't cross-examine either of them at all. And then they had Jamie King from ORCID testify. And in that cross-examination, he didn't make any challenges whatsoever to the DNA results. The only the only item he asked about was about a, a hair that was found in Agne, underneath Agnes's ring that was had unknown or that it was uh, inconclusive. The testing on that on that ring or on that hair. Yeah, actually, I'm glad you mentioned that because that. When I went to Judge Stefano's house that weekend to watch the crime scene video, and then we were scrolling through all the crime scene photographs, to me, the the most probative piece of evidence in that whole crime scene likely was that hair that was clasped in Agnes's hand. And when I looked at that hair, it immediately, to me, it looks like a longish blonde hair. Mm-hmm maybe gray, and Deborah had really short, darkish brown hair. And, you know, when you see a hair, to me it looked like, again, the images are not the best resolution, but to me it looked like it was clasped, like it was clutched in her hand, like she had been struggling and fighting for her life and perhaps, you know, pulled out the hair of her attacker. And at the time when I originally started reviewing this case, Judge Stefano was filling me in on the family dynamics of the Courtney's and Deborah, and I, I think it's pretty well known, and I'm sure you um, already looked into this, that Deborah had her own issues and problems, and you know that she'd have a perfect relationship with her parents. But they, there was an adopted daughter who had, according to Judge Stefano, and I've never seen any photos, so I can't confirm this, but. According to Judge Stefano, at the time of the murders, the adopted daughter had long blonde hair. Yeah, I've, I've I've heard that too, and this may surprise you. I don't know if you caught this, but that hair that was that was clasped in her hand, from the records I have, was never collected as evidence. And and that, no, I had not heard that. When I first saw that image, I thought that's what we need the DNA from. We right. need to know whose hair that is. 
And like I said, I kept trying to push this case on <laughs> the Innocence Project of Texas. I was probably pretty annoying about it. But I kept saying, it, find out if that hair's been tested for DNA. And if it has, let's see the DNA results. And I was never, before I moved up here to the greater New York area, I was never able to obtain that information. I actually reached out to, before I moved to Connecticut, I reached out to Danny Burns, who was an attorney that I think had handled one of Debbie's appeals or was preparing an appeal for her. And I had told him um, that I was working with Leon Dofino on the case and could he get me, could he provide me with copies of the DNA work that was done? And for whatever reason, I don't know, he never responded to my phone calls or my emails. So... I've found in my experience that people won't turn over the DNA results to independent consultants that usually have to go through an attorney. But if you, if you have had better luck with that, then I need to know what your secrets are. Well, usually my secret is I ask Allison to file for it. So exactly. <laughs> hopefully she'll be able to find it. But that was what was crazy about that was. That, you know, I, I read in the reports or in the evidence collection logs and then in the DNA reports, the hair found under her wedding ring, it says, which is on her left hand. But then in that crime scene photo that you're referring to and what we see in the video is that long hair that's clutched in her right hand. Right hand. Yes. Yeah. There's nowhere indicated that that hair was even collected and it for certain wasn't ever sent to a lab for testing. Which is which is insane. It's insane, but it also, I mean, it's blatantly obvious when you look at that hair that it didn't come from Deborah. Right. And if they, at that point, if they were already focusing on Deborah, then that would, that would not, ha that would have been the smoking gun that excluded her or potentially excluded her. Right. Because it was long and blonde or long and, and gray. I don't know what it was, but, you know, like I said, to me... From a DNA standpoint, that would have been the one of the most probative pieces of evidence because, you know, it's pretty well known in violent attacks. And I, I think I remember reading in the autopsy reports that both Agnes and Smitty had defensive wounds, so they both yes. fought for their for their lives. So, you know, fingernail scrapings, fingernail clippings, hairs, fibers that are grabbed during the struggle while they're fighting for their life are extremely probative, as you know, in cases like this. So it makes absolutely no sense to me now if you're telling me that that hair was never even, not just never even collected, but not tested also for DNA. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot to be desired by the crime scene investigation. You know, there was not enough photos taken, not enough analysis done. It, it seems like the crime scene investigator was, well, I know from his testimony that he was, he was pretty new at the job at the time when he, when he did the, when he processed the scene. But, you know, if, if we can jump back to the, the DNA we have. So what they, what was testified to and, and we'll work on getting further results was that the, the five, blood samples in question, the the ones that convicted Debbie, were all tested against the adopted daughter, her husband or her fiance at the time, Deborah's husband, Lloyd and Agnes, and they were all excluded from the blood and then Debbie was the only one that was included. So that that would seem to me, and again, they didn't probe into it, that there wasn't much of 
there really couldn't have been a mix with Agnes and Lloyd's blood. And then, of course, we have Deborah's testimony that, you know, she said she was there that day and her finger was bleeding and she got blood in, in several places in the house. So it, it seems, at least on its face, I, I guess I'm looking for guidance from you on, on what else to look for if there's, a, if there's a reason why we should think that maybe that wasn't Debbie's blood. Well, you know, first and foremost, I would need to actually see the DNA results, not the summary report, but the DNA results. And not just the final DNA profiles that were obtained, but the presumptive and confirmatory tests that were associated with those samples. Because, you know, obviously, for example, if you, like if someone came into my house right now and stabbed me to death and bludgeoned me to death in a similar manner, my DNA, my skin cells, my nucleated skin cells are all over this house. And if I spilled blood, you know, on the floor, on the bed, or wherever I was killed, and they swabbed up that blood stain, they're going to get my DNA from that blood stain, but some of the DNA is probably also coming, coming from an epithelial cell fraction, a skin cell fraction. And so that's why I'm saying I don't know if these were mixtures, like, let's say, for example, let's say one of the areas that was swabbed that they said has Debbie's DNA on it, if it was a mixture of Agnes and Debbie or Smitty and Debbie, and it was a mixture analysis, she would have been included in that mixture because she has half of her DNAs from both of her from each of her parents. So that's why I'm saying without seeing the actual DNA evidence, it's hard for me to make any draw any conclusions or make any statements about the strength or weakness of that that evidence. I will, I don't know if this is something that Judge Stefano brought up with you or maybe Allison or Mike Ware. I will tell you something that has always bothered me that I noticed when I was at Leanne Dauphino's house when we were viewing that crime scene video over and over and over again on this giant TV screen at her house. When they get to the back bedroom where Agnes's body was found, they're kind of scanning. They're doing like a three, at some point they're doing like a 360 scan around the room and the bedroom door is open and there's a like a full length mirror on the door, on the outside of the door. And if I remember correctly, they claimed during the trial trial testimony that Deborah's blood was, there was a blood smear on that mirror that belonged to her. And Judge Dauphino and I both watched that crime scene video, like I said, about 20 or so times at her house, and we kept freeze-framing the point where they scan around, and you can see a clear, like, floor-to-ceiling image of the mirror on the door. And I know it's not the highest quality video, but there's no visible blood on there at all. But then later, when you're looking at the crime scene photos, there's a photo with an exhibit sticker next to a blood smear right on that mirror. And again, I'm not, you know, I'm not accusing any anybody of anything sinister here. But there's a lot of people that, and I've I've had friends that have looked at that crime scene video too. There's a lot of people. That, that I've looked at it and said when the video was originally taken, there wasn't a, a blood smear on that mirror. So where did it come from? 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I've had that pointed out to me, too, and I've watched it over and over again and the same thing. I don't I don't see a blood smear. I you know, I, I haven't really reported too much on it because because of the quality of the video and the fact that it's moving. But I mean, gosh, it looks when you watch it over and over again, I've I've yet to been, been able to detect that blood smear on the mirror when the video goes through. And isn't that one of the the things that they said proved she was trying to push the door open to get to Agnes? And that proves that it was her because her finger was cut and it came onto. I can't even remember also. I think one of the other things was, and again, I can't remember the details on this, but I can't remember. I I thought, maybe I'm wrong. I thought that uh, Leanne Dofino had told me that Deborah was left-handed. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. I, I, haven't, I haven't seen enough evidence on the, I, I've heard that too. And I have no reason to doubt that it's true, but I just I haven't seen anything on the crime scene that indicates a left or right handed offender. So I didn't really you know, pay it too much attention. Yeah. I just know some people. And again, I'm not a blood smear, blood pattern expert, but I know that I've heard people talk about the direction of that. Like she obviously probably would have been using her dominant hand or her dominant arm to try to push that door open and that the direction of the smear that was on the mirror is opposite. This is what I've heard. Again, I'm not an expert in that, mm-hmm. but the direction of the smear is opposite of what it would have been with a left-handed person. I don't know. There's just there's so many, so many things. The other thing that bothered me is the whole trash can lid scenario where, what was the investigators, investigator Gass, I think was yeah. his name, or Detective Gass. I think I can't remember if it was from the transcripts or well in the transcripts he says that he and the other investigators on the scene all inspected that white plastic lid and didn't see anything yeah of evidentiary value on it and then the next day they go back and then they pull Debbie's DNA or Debbie's blood off of it Yeah and that yeah that's what I was thinking that was one of the other areas that they allegedly found her DNA not just her DNA but her blood so, you know, like I said, whether or not, if there was visible blood on there, in order to assess whether or not it is Debbie's DNA, we need to actually see the results. But if it's a single source profile, if the presumptive and confirmatory testing was done for blood, and it is indeed blood, and they got a single source profile and it came from Debbie, then that's pretty incriminating. But if they got a positive presumptive and confirmatory test result for blood and they swabbed up that blood and it's a mixture, then that could very well be Agnes's blood and Debbie's epithelial skin cell DNA or Smitty's blood and Debbie's epithelial skin cell DNA from when she 
you know, I think she had talked about how she would uh, drop her daughter off at school and then go to her parents' house, and she often helped them wash their dishes and clean up around the house. You know, so conceivably, she's put things in that trash can before and pretty much touched every surface in that house. So that's why I said it's, you know, it's really impossible for me to draw any conclusions about any alleged DNA that they found or what they reported during the trial when I've, I've never even seen the actual electrophorograms. Right. Now, now, this is my issue. Now, and now I'm just taking what was testified to and what the results, summary results, I think, that I've seen. This is where I have an issue. So there's five places where Debbie's blood is found on the scene that the state theorizes that this was part of her, you know, that she injured herself during the attack and then and then continue to bleed throughout the house as she's moving from one victim to the other. My issue is Jamie King, the the analyst, testified that Agnes and Lloyd and everyone was ruled out as the contributor and only Debbie was a contributor. So let's let's just assume for a minute that there was no mixture. My question is, how is there no mixture if it was during the commission of the crime? There was blood everywhere. Everywhere. If she's yeah. bleeding from her finger, she would also have Lloyd and or Agnes's blood on her hand. I don't see how it's possible for her to have left blood in those places. Let's look at specifically the the door, you know, the, the door into the into the bedroom. You know, if if this happens, especially based on the state's theory, she's already killed Lloyd. You know, her her hands would have blood on them already. The fact that, to me, the fact that it's only her blood is more exculpatory than inculpatory because, you know, she she has an explanation for as to why that blood is there. And we don't have any mixture of the victim's blood with that at all or epithelial cells or anything else. Yeah, I have to. I mean, I have to completely agree with you on that. I mean. Like you, I've seen the crime scene videos and all of the uh, the crime scene video and all of the images, and it was just an extremely bloody scene for you know for both Agnes and Smitty. I, I don't see how she couldn't have had blood. It seemed to be kind of a very close contact struggle between her the perpetrator and both victims. I don't know how they couldn't have blood on their hands and all over them for that matter. But I'll say something else that, so so single source samples or single source DNA samples of Debbie's being all over the house is perplexing. I'll just, I'll just say that it's interesting. I would say it is possible, but not probable is the way I would tend to think about that. Um, but I'll tell you another thing relating to the same topic that we're talking about that struck me is, you know, yes, obviously, it doesn't look good for Debbie that she has those two cuts on her finger. To me, that's like, oh, you know, that was that's a cringeworthy almost moment when I saw those those photographs that they took of her finger. And I don't know if you've talked to, again, this is not my area of expertise, but to me, they look like they had been healing for a while. They didn't look like fresh cuts to me. And I looked at, I compared the two, what I consider small cuts on her finger to the condition that the, that both of the victims were in. And 
to me, it's kind of implausible. It seems it's implausible. Number one, that the perpetrator wouldn't also have a lot of blood on them, but also that as much as it seemed that both Agnes and Smitty fought back and struggled and fought for their life, that the only thing that happened to the perpetrator was two little small cuts on the finger. Right. And I agree. And when I look at those photos, they look to me and and I'll, and I'll have up on our website, those photos for our listeners to look at, but they were described by the investigating officers as being fresh cuts. But to me, they do, they look like they're a couple days old. Um, but you know, one thing that, you know, before we wrap up that I want to run by you is to me, it seems now, now maybe in the 2001 standards, they're, they might not have been able to find this because I don't know when, when did they start really using skin cell epithelial cell doing that type of DNA testing? Well, we've, we've always been able to obtain DNA from skin cells, but there needed to be a certain amount of skin cells present for us to get a readable signal, a strong enough signal to generate a profile. And what's happened over time with DNA technology and Obviously, since the time of this crime, technology has astronomically improved. There's a couple of different areas where DNA technology has improved, but in reference to your question, is that our methods, not just our methods in the laboratory, but the instrumentation that we actually use to analyze the evidence, to detect the DNA and analyze the evidence, have become much more sensitive. So both the chemicals, the assays, the reagents, and the techniques that we use in the lab have improved, and the instrumentation has improved to the point that we can detect much, much smaller amounts of DNA. And that's why we're getting, we're able to detect these touch DNA samples where only potentially a couple of cells have transferred from the person's hand to a doorknob or a surface, a weapon, et cetera. Right. And just to give you an, just to give you an idea of, of how sensitive our methods are. Like my primary area of expertise is working on human skeletal remains. I do DNA work on skeletal remains. And not just contemporary like casework remains, but kind of as a side gig because I'm a, I'm a big history buff. I work on a lot of historical and archaeological skeletal remains and I'll just throw this out to um, to your listeners and to you to explain how good our DNA methods are now. Even, you know, within say the past three to five years, um, I just published a historical remains case that I just finished working on, the French explorer La Salle, um, on his last expedition trying to discover the Gulf of Mexico, where the Mississippi River dumps into the Gulf of Mexico, sank his ship off the coast of Texas in the late 1600s, so 17th century. The Texas Historical Commission, hired, they basically uh, found, they discovered the shipwreck excavated it, and they found two sets of adult skeletal remains in the shipwreck. This was in the uh, late 1990s. And they hired me a couple of years ago, within the past two to three years, to do DNA work on the skeletal remains. And I've got full DNA profiles on one set of remains and partial profiles on the other. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that that shows you, that kind of exemplifies how good our techniques are now compared to, like, I would not have been able to generate the results I generated on those remains in 2001 when these, when the Courtney murders occurred, as I have been able to do 
with more current methods. Right. And and that's what where I'm, where I'm leading into is what we can do now. I find it, and, and you would know better than me, so I'm interested in your opinion on it, but I find it extremely unlikely that the Courtney's killer or killers didn't leave their DNA on the bodies and clothing of the two victims, especially if, you know, the state's theory is that, you know, it's Debbie and she's actively bleeding during the attacks. You know, and they both Agnes and Smitty had what they called coup de gras wounds where after they were down, someone hunched, the, the killer hunched over them and slowly sliced across their necks multiple times. So you'd expect to find the if it's Debbie and her hands bleeding, you expect to find her blood around their neck. I know with the results that we have from the time that there was none of Debbie's DNA found on either of the bodies or near either of the bodies. So moving forward with new technology, do you think that it would be uh, something worth putting the effort into to try to do more DNA testing on the clothing that's still in evidence? Not just the clothing. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think our chances of recovering usable DNA data now with more modern technology is much better than it would have been back then. But my question is, were the fingernails of Lloyd and Agnes ever clipped and retained? Because if those are retained, with all the defensive wounds that they had, demonstrating that they fought for their lives, why didn't they, or did they take fingernail clippings and test for the perpetrator's DNA? Yeah, I, I believe I read that they were, that they did take clippings that whatever the results were, were not testified to at trial. So I'll have to do a little more digging in the, the DNA result. I'll add that to my list. But don't you find that interesting? Yeah. You you think think they would at least testify to, you know, to the fact that they were, that it was done. But maybe they didn't get the results they wanted. Right. Or maybe they didn't get results at all. I don't know. I feel like there's a couple of reasons why it'd be interesting. It would be interesting to find out what evidence remains in storage that would be available for retesting. Because not just, I think it'd be worth retesting the methods with our current technologies, not just from the standpoint that we're more successful with smaller amounts of DNA with our current technologies. But it's not just about the increased sensitivity, but the other thing that we've done just in the past, say, two or three years, starting in January 2017, the FBI has mandated that we increase the total number of DNA markers that we analyze, and it's mandatory. We used to have a, a core set of 13 loci, 13 core CODIS markers that all accredited forensic DNA labs across the U.S. were required to analyze, and they increased that to 20 in January 2017. So what that means is increased discriminatory powers. So when I tell people, when I consult on cases and I say, hey, let's get the evidence retested, not just with the more sensitive technologies and, and instrumentation, but also with a, with a more modern assay that has more DNA markers in it, I tell them that that improves the discriminatory power. So if your client is guilty, it's even going to further incriminate your client. But if they're innocent, it's more. It provides more opportunity to exclude them as contributors to DNA profiles that were obtained from evidence. Sure. I will say something else that 
if we can get an inventory of what still exists in police storage, evidence-wise, that could be retested. There's some other current technologies or emerging technologies that are available right now that would be kind of interesting, aside from just seeing if the DNA profiles obtained matched Deborah or came from an unknown contributor. Is we, we have newer markers now that we've focused on. They're not part of the FBI-mandated markers, but they're called SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, and there are certain SNPs in the human genome that, that can quite accurately predict the hair color, eye color, and biogeographic ancestry, their race or ethnicity of an unknown perpetrator. So it'd be interesting, that unknown DNA, I, I remember, I recall kind of briefly from the transcripts that there was some unknown DNA or inconclusive DNA that was found on some of the items of evidence. Um, aside from matching them or not matching them directly to Deborah, there's other information that can be derived from that DNA sample as well, other than just seeing if it matches a suspect reference sample. We can also potentially generate a physical description of the perpetrator or perpetrators that were present. After my conversation with Dr. Ambers, I sent her the DNA results that were provided to me through the Fort Worth Police Department. As she was looking them over, I spent some time contemplating the scenarios necessary for Debbie to have cut her finger during the attack on her parents but leave only her blood in all of the locations on the crime scene. I just can't piece it together. There should be a mixture, and there's just not. Not anywhere except on the caller ID box, but that mixture contains DNA from an unknown contributor, not from the Courtney's. It just doesn't seem possible in my opinion, and Dr. Ambers, she tends to agree. After reviewing the available results, she found a few things very strange. First of all, there's the fact that Debbie's blood is not mixed with any DNA from either of the two victims, in their own house, where they were both bleeding profusely. And secondly, there's the timing of the testing. As Dr. Ambers mentioned during our conversation, the Fort Worth PD DNA lab was shut down in the fall of 2002 due to bad practices. But this crime occurred nearly a year before that happened. In November of 2001, the Fort Worth Crime Lab was still performing DNA testing, and they were still using the bad practices that later resulted in their 10-year shutdown. When I sent the results to Angie, she noticed that the Orchid Cellmark Lab received the evidence for DNA testing five months after the murders. The idea that the detectives in this case would wait for that long to send the evidence to be tested is a non-starter. It just would not happen. Which lends some credibility to Judge Dofino's claim to Dr. Ambers that the Fort Worth Crime Lab tested the evidence first, didn't get the results they were looking for, and then sent samples off to Orchid Cellmark to retest. Something stinks. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. 
All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at Truth, and Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.